You're listening to the Ruby on Rails podcast. You're listening to episode 492. I'm your host, Elise Schaefer, and today I'm joined by Vladimir Dementia. Vladimir is a back-end engineer for Mars, or Evil Martians, a consultancy specialized in product development for startups and developer tools. Vladimir is known for his work on many open source projects in the Ruby on Rails world, such as AnyCable, Action Policy, TestProf, and many more. He recently published the book Layered Design for Ruby on Rails Applications and just came back home from the first ever Rails World Conference. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks, Elise, for having me. Thanks, everyone, for listening to it. Glad to be here and sharing my, I don't know, whatever experience in writing the book, probably, or the recent Rails world, as you mentioned. I'm still feeling a bit jet-lagged and not here. <laughs> but yeah, uh, I'd like to talk about all the mentioned topics. So do Awesome. That. Well, first, let me congratulate you on the new book. Thank um, you. It's also, it's interesting... We don't have this in the episode plan, but maybe if you want to talk about your experience at Rails World for a couple of minutes and just what was it like to go to Rails World? Well, that was awesome. Like that was very well organized, really great setup, application and wipe around like a lot of prominent people from the community managed to get tickets because it wasn't easy. So I think it was total success. So we're already waiting for the next one. It's going to happen bit closer in Canada and Toronto next September. So inviting everyone. Hope to be there too. And we'll probably bring more books. So coming back to the main topic. So I brought some books to just distribute among Rubist the conference and it was not enough. So next time I'll pack the whole suitcase of books, I think, just to share it with the all the people at the conference. That sounds that sounds really nice. So I guess let's talk about the book. The book is called Layered Design. How did you come to write this book? Well, kind of accidentally. So I didn't plan to write a book, at least on this topic, actually. But as the publisher approached me with this offer, I thought, yeah, probably I have something to say with regards to like building maintainable Rails application as I was looking at this book and I realized that, well, I have some topics already covered in open source project or conference talks. So my initial plan was actually to somehow compile the resources I already produced and have some single source of truth regarding all this uh, architecture design problem of Rails in one place. Didn't went that way, actually. So what is late design? concept I'm kind of referring to here is design the application, the architecture of it, like at the abstraction level, not related to like infrastructure or whatever, in abstraction layers. So you have basically every web application is something like a processor or web requests, mostly like units of work. And I see the process as passing this web request through multiple stages, multiple like phases of processing as a conveyor belt, something like that, and having a packed response in the end. And I imagine every step of this process is being like handled by its own abstraction layer. And that's how we move to layers in the application design. And I think it's very suitable to web applications because they're basically doing this pipeline kind of work. And that's the term. And it also kind of refers to layered architecture, which is a more common term, which is like an older idea from in the software development. I'm 
using it to as one of the tools to come up with better abstractions, actually, which I described in my book. So it's kind of related, but it's not the same. It's probably confusing to the reader because I'm not really talking about layer architecture in the book, but I'm using it just to the justification for extracting certain abstractions. But it's kind of related. When you think about a web request, you kind of talk through this in the book, right? Like the web request, it's like even before it gets to your Rails app, it's kind of hitting several layers on the way down. And you sort of, you kind of start there with, here's how a web request works, right? So I thought that that was like a good way. And that kind of mirrors what you talk about later in the book, right? So let's maybe peel the skin off of this onion. It's the pun for the episode. What are some of the layers that you think we should be adding to our Rails apps? Yeah, so I tried to put the most common layers into the book, but kind of the tool that pops into my mind when someone asks me, what is usually missing? Oh, what should you add to almost every application is authorization layer. So the one that's responsible for checking permissions, basically. Another common nowadays, at least from maybe not for all applications, but for most applications is a notifications layer. I kind of like it. I don't know why, because probably that's the one I, that the term probably coined a few years ago when I started using it. And I found that it helps almost every Rails application because the world today is no longer like using emails as the primary source of notifying like people, right? We have many different ways to send notifications. And that's, that requires some generalization of how we approach it in the app, as well as introducing flexible way of adding news like targets for our notifications. So, and I think most applications need it and probably something like that will be someday a part of the framework and we'll see. So among all the layers, all the additional layers I described in the book, I think notifications is the first candidate to eventually be somehow handled by some Rails stop framework. And after the conference, actually, we had many discussions and many people were talking about having something like form objects or form models also built into framework because it seems that this is one of the most useful abstractions again described in the book. So yeah, that's another example. Yeah, I think the addition of a notification layer, that was something that jumped out at me because I was like, oh, it is kind of its own thing. Because if you think about it now, you might be sending a push notification to like a smartphone, or maybe you're sending a notification back over a WebSocket or via an email notification itself. That was something I thought really kind of insightful. And at least in my own experience, tends to be an area where like a hidden abstraction almost, where like the code for how you handle all of those different things ends up hidden in random parts of your Rails models, or maybe it's in a background job, or maybe it's somewhere else. So that was an insight that I found particularly interesting. And I'm just, I'm curious, like, how you arrived at it. Was it extracted? Were, like, how did you kind of yeah, that's formalize an, it? That's an example of, like, abstraction extraction from one of the projects I worked on. Because we had, I think, at least three different ways to notify users, like emails, SMS messages, and push notifications. And we realized, at least in our case, all of this notifications were sent in the same places in the app. So we started treating notifications not like just send an email or whatever, just like events. So it's more like notification event. And when you start thinking in this abstraction, you see that it doesn't matter how this kind of event is delivered to the user. That's implementation detail. 
So you need to separate it from the code that actually triggers this event. And that's how we ended up with new abstractions. And that's actually how the project I mentioned in the book, it's called Active Delivery, was born. So it has been extracted from a production app and started living the, its own life. And we've been using it in many other applications since then. It's like an upgrade for Action Mailer, actually. So instead of a mail or mailer, you have now a delivery concept. And the way delivery is performed, it shouldn't be a matter of the code is triggering it. So whenever I send an invite, I don't have any preferences. Like I don't need to know about how it's going to be delivered. So that's basically actually extracting abstractions. That's why I like this notifications there, because it's probably easy to understand the goal of introducing new layers. So you're separating what matters for the caller from what doesn't matter, like what only needs to be part of the lower level layer. So it's just a, an example of abstraction born in production, born from our experience at Evil Martians, my personal experience. That's really cool. I think that those end up being like the best extractions that get pulled out, right? The ones where you see this problem over and over and over again, and then you formalize it and pull it out. And yeah, I also like the idea of the form objects. That was one that this has been a thing that I have seen in a lot of Rails apps where you get data and then you have to do like the day you get like, especially if you're building API apps, like maybe different versions of the API respond to different types of data or different keys in a JSON object or something. So I like the idea of the form objects and how that allows you to sort of formalize your user's input into your system too. That's the main goal, I think, of this abstraction. And I think one of the use cases, we were talking about someone from the Rails core team, probably was Rafael, about is there a way to introduce something like that into Rails and when it makes sense. And the idea came up that right now with Rails 7.1, one of the features is build your own authentication with utilities so you can easily introduce authentication by generating some code with Rails. And that's actually a good example where form object can be naturally introduced into Rails because handling like logging form, it's not tied to any model usually. It's like session creation form and we need to handle it somehow. And that's where form object fits naturally. I think this example demonstrates the power of this concept. Instead of putting everything into a controller or which is worse, putting this logic into a model, there is an intermediate object. So the form object. And that's something that could be added probably into further evolution of this build your own authentication direction, which Rails started with this release. Maybe we'll see something like that too, because it's not using any third-party tooling. It's just using active model, which is already in Rails. So having some form object pre-generated in a Rails application out of the box would at least encourage developers to use this pattern in other places where they need something like similar from the user interface point of view. Yeah. I think one of the things that you're doing in the book is you sort of take things that exist in the in Rails already and you're kind of like wrapping them and then extending them to other use cases, right? So the format objects, like you have an example in the book where you take the form object and you generate it from like the action controller parameters object. And I think you could think of that same thing for the notifications with email, right? Like a notification is like, it could be an email, but it could be anything else. And it's really, no matter what that is, it's the same thing. So it seems like it's like more generalized. Is that a fair, like taking something that's concrete and making it more general and then more powerful? Is that a way to think about it? Yeah. So the idea I tried to follow 
like when working on this open source project and then writing a book that we need to follow Rails principles, Rails conventions as much as possible. And where possible, we should also reuse Rails building blocks like active model or whatever. So abstract notifier, the gem I mentioned in the book, which is for notifications layer, can be seen as a generalization of action mailer because it's really is it's just an action mailer result of the actual mailing part. And probably someday in Rails, we will see the same thing happening when we will separate action mailer into abstraction, not related to any delivery mechanism and the actual implementation on top of it. Because we've already seen this with active record and active model. It has been kind of extracted from active record to separate database related stuff from basic modeling stuff. And now we can use active model to build our own abstractions, which is really good because such abstraction would automatically follow Rails conventions and Rails API. So it would be just easier for developers to use them because it's going to be like following the principle list surprise. So they're going to be familiar with the interface. I actually never thought about it this way, but yeah, I think that makes sense. I think making things as close to the Rails way as possible, that was also something that I think is pretty important. I think it makes it easier to add new patterns because the patterns that you're adding kind of conform to something that you're already familiar with. And I think that that's a very powerful aspect of it. Do you currently use one service for uptime monitoring, another one for error tracking, another for status pages, and yet another to monitor your cron jobs and microservices? Paying for all those services separately may be costing you way more than you think. If you want to simplify your stack and lower your bills, it's time to check out HoneyBadger. HoneyBadger combines all of those services into one easy-to-use platform. It's everything you need to keep production healthy and your customers happy. Best of all, HoneyBadger is free for small teams and setup takes as little as five minutes. Get started today at HoneyBadger.io. That is HoneyBadger.io. Thank you to HoneyBadger for their continued support of the Ruby on Rails podcast. So we've kind of touched on this a little bit, but in a Rails app, you've got kind of like the web request part of it. And then you've got like stuff that happens like outside of the request response cycle. And I'm curious, when you're thinking about these layers, how do you think about where they fit in either one of those things? Well, that's a tricky part, actually, because if we try to visualize the, the layers, the diagram, it's not going to be just like a stack of layers, one on top of each other, because we have different entry points to our application. So one and the most common that I build the whole book around actually is web request, HTTP request. And we start with Rack, controllers, and so on. But we also have, I call it inbound layers or entry points, whatever. And we also have so-called internal inbound layers, which is, for example, background jobs. They also follow the same idea. We enter the execution at the job level and then we go down the stack like probably using some intermediate objects and finally reaching models and so on and the biggest difference here is that inbound layers do not require anything related to processing user input like representation or form objects as well for example because we assume that the data we send like to process by this inbound layer so the input is controlled by us. So we generated it somewhere in a different part of the application and we just added it to be processed in the background. 
And then we should assume that it's kind of valid. It has a correct format, which is not usually the case, but that's different problem of handling arbitrary user input, where we should be doing some validations, verification, and so on. So in pinball players like background jobs, we just don't have this set additional layers we have in the West processing. So it's kind of a, the path is shorter, right? If we take a look at it as passing through layers. So the web request has probably the longest path, the longest, the greatest number of intermediate stops at the abstraction layer, while background jobs have like less. So if you think about like the form objects, would you use something like a form object as like the input for a background job or would you want to keep them totally separate and only use them on the request response side? So with regards to form object, they are pure presentation layer abstractions and technically we cannot have any presentation specific stuff in background jobs. Well, there could be some exclusions, but in general, no. Because the primary goal of the form object is actually like the two goals, like two responsibilities to validate the input, to provide the feedback to user. And when we talk about background jobs, we do not have users. And we, as I said before, we may assume that input is already valid. The core functionality of form object, like triggering some action, like performing some operation, is not its primary responsibility. And it actually can be even extracted further in some other abstraction layer, even service object. And that's, that would be something that would be the first thing you call from the background job. So you're starting not from the presentation layer, you're already starting from the services layer. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. So in the book, you also talk a little bit about like some of the powers that Rails gives you that are maybe can get you into bad situations or can make your code more complicated. I'm just curious, what are some of the anti-patterns that you see happening in Rails apps and how should people think about tackling them? Well, or avoiding them. Yeah, I think speaking from my experience, there are some anti-patterns I mentioned in the book, like overusing model level callbacks and making it's much harder to understand the data flow in the application and what triggers what. That's one of the biggest problems with Rails because callbacks are powerful. So like any anti-pattern is like a double-edged sword it's because you... It brings you power in the moment, so you can make something much easier, much faster. But if you overuse it or you use it like non-reasonably, unreasonably, it's easier to turn it into pain point in your application. So one of the biggest, as I said, is the callbacks. And another kind of anti-pattern not mentioned in the book, but I see it a lot as kind of an inconsistency in style, let's say style, not just like formatting style, but design style, design decisions. And it actually reveals itself in having many different abstractions looking very differently across code. Usually it relates to having different third-party libraries from different ecosystems. And it's a kind of a generational problem of mature Rails application. When some developers start introducing some new ideas, some new features, some new tools, then they left and new developers come and they introduce their own favorite tools. And you end up with melting pot of different design techniques and uh, tooling and whatever. I would call it an anti-pattern as well, because the anti-pattern uh, part here is that for some reason, people do not care about either eliminating this 
ideas that no longer used by the team or adopting them further. So many code bases stay in this, let's just say, inconsistent phase when you different parts of the app look very differently. Like they really written by different people, probably, but they never were converging into some common style, whatever. So that's also like a global anti-pattern, team-related, actually. It's not about code practices, but more about how you organize your work. I think that's one of the things in the book it sort of gets at is that when things start to get blurry, what you're doing in the book is you're saying, this is like a blurry thing, but let's make it a specific thing that has clear boundaries. And I think you can apply that to all of the layers that you're adding in the book and how you're sort of talking about it. Is that a fair characterization? Yeah, that's, I like the term blurry. So that's the biggest problem of Rails application. They have a lot of blurry abstractions. And that's what makes it harder to work with the code base. Yeah, for sure. I know in the book you talk a little bit about concerns. So I'm just curious, how concerned should we be about concerns? Well, I'm trying to be somewhere in between those who say who never use concerns and those who tell like use concerns to extract code whenever you want. And why I'm trying to be in the middle, because I see the benefit of having concerns, but only mostly, okay, not only, but mostly for kind of a extraction of atomic behaviors. The example from the book is like self-deletable concern. If you have some common logic shared between models and it's very concise, like very isolated, localized, with high cohesiveness or whatever. So it makes sense to extract it into a concern or maybe even further some like a jam with that you have just a macro in your model, like self-deletable without using real concerns, whatever. So that's a piece of behavior you just extract. And one of the idea behind this is that if you pull out this concern of the model, it shouldn't break the whole app. So it shouldn't be the essential part of your model. It's an attached behavior which you can turn off and on and it wouldn't break most of the application logic, maybe some, but not most of it. So that's one of the examples of when concerns are useful and can be used freely. On the opposite side, the example, we just use control for concerns like probably models just to extract code into a different file, like to maybe improve readability, like someone think, some people think, but I don't think it's a good idea to do that. So every concern must be somehow justified by, it must have some meaning, like besides putting code in a different file. So that's main idea. And it doesn't mean that like my example is like self-deletable is like shared concern, right? Like that's probably the most common way of using concerns. But sometimes concerns are also useful to extract this like peripheral behavior or attached behavior from a single model. Even if it's not reused, it can help in readability, but only if you keep it isolated. So that's kind of the idea. So we should be concerned about concerns when we're using them. But that doesn't mean that it should avoid them. Awesome. Yeah, I think there's definitely, this is kind of interesting because usually I hear people are either like, oh yeah, concerns are fine, use them for whatever. Or people are like, never use concerns. Like, don't use them at all. But you're saying, no, there's a time and a place to use them. And if you're using them in a way that's helping you be more productive and is not going to cause risks down the line, then yeah, you should, that's how you should be using them. Yeah, that's kind of the idea. If you have two people telling you one, like, never do that. And another one, oh, you can do that at any time. The actual truth somewhere in between. And you need to find it yourself. But that's a problem, probably, because it's going to be very context dependent. 
So we've talked about a couple of these layers. There's some more in the book that we haven't gotten to, and I'll let the listeners uh, read the book and check those out. But do you think it's worth a new project? Let's say you're starting a brand new project right now. Do you think it's worth adding these extra layers at the very beginning? And if not, when might the appropriate time be to add them? That's a good question. I do not start new projects too often, but when I do that, I start with just plain rails or at least up till some point when I know it's hard to say, like, is it a point in time or it's a side of the code base, side of the team or whatever. But for most extractions from the second part of the book related to active record, they should could probably be postponed till the point when you start feeling some like, problems with doing with maintaining it. As for other abstractions not related to the domain layer, like authorization and notifications, I would probably start introducing them as soon as I have this feature to be implemented. If I already have a couple of notification events and I need to send them in different ways, like emails and push notification, for example, right, right from the start, then I would better start with notifications layer from that moment. If I only need emails, and I'm not thinking about other ways. Then I started with Action Mailer. And that's the idea of the tools I describe in the book. So with active delivery, you can switch to Action Mailer just by changing the name of the class. And that wouldn't be a huge amount of factoring if you want to introduce other ways to notify people. Similarly, authorization layer. I would probably start with the policies as soon as I need something more complex and just checking if user is admin or not. So as soon as I need some forization logic, I would better extract it from the very beginning. Because otherwise it's going to be, the longer you wait for such extraction, the harder it's going to be to accomplish because you need to find all the places where you use it and so on. And another benefit is actually extractions help to write cleaner tests. And that's one of the reason I would go with an abstraction for authorization instead of having all the tests for authorization in the controller. Of course, if you write tests. So for different layers, different strategies probably here or when to introduce them. Probably, yeah. So as I said, just to recall, so everything related to the making model layer, moment or domain layer, this probably can wait until some point. But for new concepts, like for introducing something in between, models and controllers. That makes sense to start as soon as you hit the need for that. Awesome. That sounds like great advice. What's something that I didn't ask you that you think our listeners should know about? Well, I think like we talk about the book, one thing I'd like to mention that this book is not a book of recipes. So if you're just looking for some code snippets, you can pour it into your code base and make it better. That's not the case. Sorry, you have to read it <laughs> so to come up with a better abstraction for your code base that, that you will benefit from. Because that's a problem I experienced myself when I was just a younger Rails developer. I just started using Rails and I discovered the world of beyond MVC, like design patterns. And I started just using them chaotically in my code base. And it didn't end up well because I just was trying to add something that was popular at the moment, for example, without really thinking whether I needed, whether it fits my use case, whether it fits my code base. I was just using all cool and shiny things. And that was a problem that didn't end up well. But that's how I learned process of 
the kind of methodology I describe in the book. So yeah, that's probably something you should be aware of when reading this book. It's more like coming up with a thinking process for working with your application, not just reusing someone else's idea. And that's why I try to avoid referring to many gems, but I'm not telling you how to really use a refactor your code base using these tools. I'm just providing them as an, as examples of how it can be. So that's that's probably the most important thing to know about the book. I, th- I think one of the nice things you do when you talk about various gems in the book is you give multiple options of like gems that do the thing that you're talking about. So I think that that's also very helpful. Thank you so much for being on the show, Vladimir. It was a joy to have this conversation. Yeah, How can you. people find you online? Well, as I usually tell, like the best way is to reach me out on GitHub by sending me pull request or an issue. I have a lot of projects you can contribute to. And another option is Twitter, where you can also follow my updates on what I'm working on. Yeah, um, we will include links in the show notes for everyone. Yeah, thank you for the conversation. I was happy to be here. Yeah, thanks. I was happy to have you. This has been the Ruby on Rails podcast. It was a pleasure talking with Vladimir Dementiev. I learned a lot and I hope you did too. You can get layered design on Amazon or from the packed publishing websites. We put links in the show notes. Thanks to Paul, our wonderful editor over Peachtree Sound for making us sound all professional. And thank you for listening. You're a gem. You've been listening to the Ruby on Rails podcast. Follow us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever fine podcasts are downloaded to stay in the loop on Ruby on Rails and open source software. While you're at it, please leave us a review. And thank you for listening.